So this morning, what we're going to do is I'm going to take a short amount of time and I'm going to introduce us to the letter of Galatians using the first five verses of Galatians. So if you have a copy of the scriptures, you can turn to Galatians chapter 1. Galatians uh, 1, 1 through 5. And uh, using these, we're going to be able to answer three questions that are central to being able to understand the book. And then after I finish that, um, we're going to pretend like we were the early church at Galatia. We don't have to, you know, get into costumes or get into character or anything. But we're going to invite someone forward, and they're going to read to us the entirety of the book of Galatians, and we're going to receive it as if we were that church. And hopefully I'll be able to set the picture for that to happen. And then we'll have a few minutes afterwards to respond with these cards, and then we'll conclude our service. Make sense? Know where we're going? That's how we're after. All right, Galatians chapter 1, verse 1 through 5. This is what Paul writes to start this letter. Paul, an apostle, sent not from men nor by a man, but by Jesus Christ and God the Father, who raised him from the dead, and all the brothers and sisters with me, to the churches in Galatia, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to rescue us from the present evil age, according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. Three questions to set the stage for us. First question is, who are the Galatians? The second question is, who is Paul? And the third question is, what is the gospel? Uh, And if we understand these three things, we really will have the foundation we need to kind of hear the entirety of the letter this morning and attempt to dig into it as a congregation. First question, who is the Galatians? And this is a debated question. Uh, Everyone believes that these are a group of churches that existed in what is modern-day central Turkey. Uh, Some believe it was to the southern part, uh, and this would have been churches that Paul founded on his first missionary journey uh, in the book of Acts, places like Iconium, Lystra, Derbe, places like that, Pisidian, Antioch kind of the very first places that Paul went and established churches. Some people would believe that. Some people would believe it's actually in the northern part of this central region of Turkey where Paul might have visited on his second missionary journey, but not intentionally. Remember that's that whole thing where Paul was trying to get places and he said this Holy Spirit kept him from going there. And eventually there was a Macedonian call. Well, kind of in that moment of waiting, there's this time where Paul was in this area in northern central Turkey where he was probably doing ministry just like he did in Athens when he was stopped. And uh, Paul might have engaged there. So we're talking about Galatia geographically. That's what we're talking about. Okay. Now, more specifically, who were the Galatians? The Galatians were uh, fairly recent converts to Christian faith. They were fairly recent believers in the gospel of Jesus. And they were... Uh, largely non-Jewish believers, right? So they were Gentile. They were non-Jewish people who who had accepted the gospel and embraced faith uh, in Jesus. And then after Paul, who had significant ministry amongst them, had left, soon after that, uh, teachers who were more committed to Judaism than the purity of the gospel came into their midst and began teaching to them that the gospel is good. It's a good way in. But in order to really please God, you have to become, in essence, somewhat ethnically Jewish. 
other words, that you have to add things to the gospel in order to please God. And the Galatians who had believed the gospel experienced incredible freedom from it and had been transformed by it very easily slid into the traps of religion and status as means of pleasing God rather than the gracious gift of Jesus Christ. And this is the means by which Paul writes it. So first question. Second question, who is Paul? Paul, uh, for many of you are familiar with his story, but let me give you a quick overview. Some, some may not be familiar. Paul was a, uh, a very successful and accomplished leader within the Jewish religious system um, <clears throat> in Israel and, and beyond. He called himself a Pharisee amongst Pharisees. According to the law, he was without blemish. That was, he was serious about his Jewish faith. And early in the book of Acts, we find out that he was so serious about his Jewish faith that when the Christian church sprung up, when people believing in the gospel of Jesus sprung up and, and the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, when that came up, Paul set out passionately to put that down, right? He saw it as a wildfire that was starting that needed to be stomped out immediately before it spread. And so he saw it as his personal mission to do that, uh, so much so that he was traveling abroad to persecute and even put to death Christians. On one of these missions, Paul, on the, on the road to Damascus, as it famously is called, Paul meets the resurrected Jesus. Jesus appears to Paul. He blinds him. Paul understands that this is God speaking. And in that moment, Paul has his conversion experience where he embraces Jesus as fully God and as truly resurrected and therefore the one who is opening the truth of all that God has promised to do for his people. In the same time, Paul is commissioned by Jesus to go and take this message, very interestingly, not to Jewish people with whom he would know, but to Gentile people who were not Jewish at all. And something distinct happens in Paul that he realizes no longer is it necessary for him to be ethnically Jewish in order to make God happy. Because in the Old Covenant, it seemed like that. Follow all the, the, the rules of the Jewish religion, follow all the laws, and God will be happy, God will stay with you. That's a crass and, and actually not true reading of the Old Testament. But for many people of the day, that's kind of what they had fallen into. And for Paul, his whole identity was his religious performance. And suddenly on that road, he saw himself for who he was. Basically, unworthy. Nothing. He could be so devout and so religious and yet miss who God was and what God was actually doing. And he was working in opposition to it. So Paul embraces this call to uh, take the gospel to the Gentiles. He goes and is trained for a while. Then he gets connected to this church in Antioch that we've talked about before. Uh, he ministers there. He teaches there. There's a moment where a prophetic word is spoken and Paul and Barnabas are set apart to go out. And this begins the first missionary journey where Paul is sent out to preach the purity of the gospel apart from anything else. It's interesting what Paul says to the Galatians. He says, I'm sent not from man, 
nor of man. Did you catch that? In other words, what he's saying is a group of people didn't decide it was a good idea for me to have this job. All of us would suggest it was never a good idea for someone who was killing Christians to be sent on the road to get more Christians in, right? At first glance, no one is going to believe him. Everyone's going to be guarded against him. And perhaps that's why he sent to the Gentiles to begin with. Paul is explicit here that his commission comes from Jesus alone, not from the call of man. Now listen, I serve in a similar way. But my call, while feeling internally called from Christ, was in fact affirmed by man. My ordination in this denomination, my call to be the lead pastor of this church, of these two congregations, is a call of man and from man. Paul is saying there's something different and distinct about his ministry. What he's saying is that he is an apostle, capital A. Right? An apostle, capital A. And what that means is, in the early church, there were 12 apostles, right? Or, or somewhere around that number. Some would say there's a few more. And, and these apostles were people who had seen the resurrected Jesus and who were sent by the resurrected Jesus to take the gospel out. And in so doing, were given significant authority. Remember distinctly, Peter. Remember Jesus says to Peter, the gates of keys of heaven and hell are given to you, right? There's this authority that's given to him. And so Paul is saying, because the Galatians have heard from Paul and responded, and now they've heard from other teachers and are believing what the other teachers are saying, he's saying, listen, this isn't just some traveling teacher thing here. This is the message of Christ. Paul is a capital A apostle. Why do I say capital A? Well, so in Ephesians chapter 4, Paul would say apostles are given to the church too. That is, there is an apostolic gifting uh, of many people within the church. Some people have known that about themselves. Some people have not known that because as churches, we've not sort of been comfortable saying that because it becomes difficult to distinguish between capital A apostle and lowercase a apostle. Here's what I mean. An apostolic gifting or calling would be someone who is typically sent out to begin new things or to launch new ministries or to see new things start or to take new ground for the kingdom of God. I would suggest to you humbly that one of the, the calls that God has put on my life is a lowercase a apostolic calling, right? I do not speak the words of God, nor should you take my journals and, and assume that they are anywhere close to the authority of Galatians, but starting a church, starting a movement of church, dreaming a dream to reach the whole Lehigh Valley, those are apostolic kinds of gifts. You see the difference between capital A and lowercase a? Paul is saying, hey, this message matters because it comes directly from Jesus. Listen, let's strike the elephant in the room real quick. There are lots of people who Paul is difficult for them. I like Jesus, but Paul is hard for me sometimes. And I would say two things to that, and I don't mean to be cavalier or blunt in any way, because I know it's a difficult, faith is a difficult journey. The first is, Paul has been unfairly interpreted a lot on secondary issues, and we should not hold wrong interpretation against the messenger. Fair? Secondly, Paul was sent by Jesus. Of that, the early church affirms clearly. 
And so the message of Paul is commissioned by Christ himself and therefore is not just worthy for the Galatians, but also for us. This teaching matters today. It's just as critical for us to realize that the freedom, the joy, the peace, the life we've tasted in the gospel is very easy to slide away from in everyday Christian experience. We add status and religion all the time to what we're doing. Thanks God for the gospel for getting me in. And now I'll prove to you that I was worthy because of all my religious performance. Well, we've already messed up. Do you see it? And Paul would say, that's no gospel at all. It's important for us. So who are the Galatians? I'm going too long already. Who is Paul? Third question, central to everything Paul writes, what is the gospel? Paul's going to start all of his letters reaffirming the gospel. Sometimes really long, like Romans chapter 1 through 11. Sometimes really short, like Galatians chapter 1, verse 3 to 5. Because in chapter in verse 6 of Galatians, Paul's so frustrated, he's ready to get in, right? But in 3 through 5, there's this beautiful exposition of the gospel. In fact, I would encourage you maybe to even consider memorizing these three verses as a constant reminder of the beauty of the gospel. He says to the church at Galatia, grace and peace. Now, fair enough, this has been a, become a common greeting, but it's a common greeting not in a secular sense, but in a religious sense. The common greeting for Paul because it's a gospel-centered greeting. What he's saying to you, is to them and to us, is that the thing that binds us together, the, meet, the reason we can have this relationship together of significance is the grace and peace that God has offered to us. Now, grace means unmerited favor, that God has done something for us that we did not deserve. He's given us this rich blessing. And what is the rich blessing? Peace, right? Unmerited, unearned Peace. Now, we've talked about this before. Peace is not sort of the absence of conflict, right? In other words, there's big headlines in the news about conflict in the Middle East that's erupting again and and the United States is involved in. And we might say there's no peace there. And that's true. But this biblical sense of peace is rooted in in the Hebrew word shalom. It's a much bigger concept than sort of conflict external. It's more about internal conflict, It is that peace is the existence of wholeness. Some might say it is the the reality of everything being as God intended it to be. Does that make sense? So in other words, because of God's unmerited uh, gift to us, we have this sense of wholeness, this sense of purpose in life. The three words we've often used here at Hope to, to describe this are significance, security, and acceptance. At some level, in some combination of those three things, are the yearnings of our soul. And when we have felt them in significance, there's this sense of shalom, peace. Paul says that's available to us because of the gracious act of God. Grace and peace to you. How? From God our Father is his next phrase, right? Gracious, yeah, it's a gift from God, but he calls him our Father because It expresses this loving characteristic of God that he is a loving father to us in bestowing these gifts on us. 
many people will wrongly look at God and say, he's angry. He's just waiting for me to mess up. He's waiting to condemn me for my mistakes. The gospel says just the opposite. That he's actually just waiting for you to admit that you are broken. So that he can bestow on you through fatherly love the peace that your soul longs for. This is the gospel. How does it happen? Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ who gave himself for our sins is the next phrase. That this gracious gift that achieves peace from a loving father is Jesus himself. He's the gift. He's the grace and he's the peace. That when we receive him and find our security, significance, acceptance, that is our identity and value in him, is when we experience peace. But he had to come, right? Because peace, wholeness, can't happen in the midst of brokenness. And we live in this world. We know what we know a little bit more what not peace looks like than what peace looks like, don't we? If we're just being honest for a minute. Uh, forget the external things, wars and rumors of wars and all this stuff. Think internally. Brokenness. The pains that we carry. The mistakes that we've made. And the wrongs that people have brought upon us. This is what a lack of shalom looks like. And the gracious gift of God is that he looks on that and doesn't say something like, well, you made your bed, go lie in it. But what God says as a loving father is, yes, you are experiencing brokenness. But I love you so much that I'm going to graciously send the only opportunity for peace into your midst that is possible. That Jesus would come, it says, for our sins. That is, in place of our brokenness. In place of our mistakes. In place of our errors. In place of our wrong choices. In place of our colossal failures. In place of all the wrong and the brokenness that is in our. That is a significantly and, and, necess and necessarily a substitutionary reality. Christ takes on our brokenness so we can take on his wholeness. Do you see this? But Jesus says things like, all you who are weary, broken, run down, need rest, come to me. And I will take that and I will give you my yoke. This is the gospel. And what does he do? Right? It says it sets us free from the, this evil present age. Now, sometimes we like to look um, contemporaneously at our existence and let's think, oh, this world is evil, right? And the Bible tells me this world is evil. Well, the Bible does say that, but it does not necessarily mean headlines. More distinctly, it is talking about inside of you. You see this? The Bible says there are three things that war against God. Certainly Satan and the dominion of darkness. We believe that. And certainly the systems of this world, not individual people as it were, but kind of the, the systems that are under the reign of Satan. And then thirdly, and the one that we love to overlook in spiritual warfare, but is the most profound, is our flesh. 
that wars against God, that wants its own reign and wants its own glory and wants its own significance and its own security and its own acceptance and shakes its hand at God and yet is like a house built on the sand. When the storms come, it collapses, Jesus would say. So what Jesus does, and this becomes central to Paul's exposition of the gospel in Galatians, is he actually sets us free from this evil present age, which includes distinctly our own flesh. And it says, by the will of God, that is that this is God's divine choice, not by something we dreamed up or deserved or cooked up, or or promised ourselves, but because God loves us that much, and then so that he might receive glory upon glory forever and ever. And then the Greek word, amen, which is a transliteration. There is a Greek word, amen, right? And we were like, there's no better word, so let's just make it English. And what it means is yes, right? It means emphatically yes, This is right. So let me repeat the gospel to you from these three verses. We are broken. Irreparably broken. Our souls are restless, St. Augustine says. Longing for peace. And God looks on us not in a condescending way that says, well, they deserve this. But as a loving father... And graciously, not because we deserve it, but because of his will and choice, grants to us an opportunity for wholeness, for true soul rest, for real and genuine identity that is accomplished by the arrival, the sinless life, the death, and ultimately the resurrection of Jesus. In our place, he becomes broken. Paul will say to the Corinthians, he became, he that knew no sin became sin so that we might be set free, right? That Jesus takes it on so that we can take on his peace. And in this way, God brings glory to himself. That is that God does not bring glory to himself by standing up there and saying, I'm God, everyone bow down but instead brings glory to himself by revealing his true character of redeeming love. This is the gospel. Nothing else added to it. So, I went far too long, but that's all right. We're going to go with this, okay? In the early church, when Paul would write these letters, what would happen would be that he would give them to a trusted messenger, And this messenger would bring the letter to the church or to the churches here in Galatians. This is a whole region. So this letter, this messenger was going to all various different places. It would come. The whole church would gather together. They would hear, Paul. there's a letter coming from Paul. They would gather together eagerly to hear it. And then the messenger would read it. And as the messenger was reading it, they would listen intently for a couple of reasons. One, there was no copy to go home to and cross-reference, right? They were probably never going to hear it again. 
Now, sometimes copies were left and were made, but they weren't in the everyday home of everyone else. They would listen eagerly and intently. And as they were listening, they would develop questions in their mind. And because this messenger was a trusted associate of Paul, this messenger was prepared to respond in back and forth to the questions that the people would ask as to what Paul was meaning by these things. And then they would pray together, and then the messenger would be off after a few days to the next place. Does this make sense? So, we're going to play two roles here, right? I'm going to have Regina's going to come up. Come on up, Regina. She's going to be our messenger, but she's not going to be the one that's going to have to answer all the questions. I promise you that, right? Over the next 12 weeks as we study Galatians together, it's going to be my job to attempt to explain and engage even the questions that you're asking so that we can all grow in Paul's authoritative word to us together. Make sense? All right, church. Paul has a letter that he sent to us. Let's gather together and let's hear it. The letter of Paul to the Galatians. Paul, an apostle, not from men nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father, who raised him from the dead, and all the brothers who are with me, to the churches of Galatia, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age, according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who, you called, who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preached to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so now I say again. If anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. For am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Or am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. For I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel. For I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ." For you have heard of my, formal life, my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people. So extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my fathers. But when he who had set me apart before I was born and who called me by his grace was pleased to reveal his son to me in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles, I did not immediately consult with anyone, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me, but I went away into Arabia and returned again to Damascus. Then after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to visit Cephas and remained with him 15 days, but I saw none of the other apostles except James, the Lord's brother. In what I am writing to you before God, I do not lie. Then I went into the regions of Syria and Cilicia, and I was still unknown in person to the churches of Judea that are in Christ. They only were hearing it said, he who used to persecute us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy, and they glorified God because of me. Then after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along with me. 
I went up because of a revelation and set before them, though privately before those who seemed influential, the gospel that I proclaim among the Gentiles, in order to make sure I was not running or had not run in vain. But even Titus, who was with me, was not forced to be circumcised, though he was a Greek. Yet because of false brothers secretly, secretly brought in, who slipped in to spy out our freedom that we have in Christ Jesus, so that they may bring us into slavery. To them, we did not yield in submission even for a moment, so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. And from those who seem to be influential, what they were makes no difference to me. God shows no partiality. Those, I say, who seemed influential added nothing to me. On the contrary, when they saw that I had been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been entrusted with the gospel to the circumcised, for he who worked through Peter for his apostolic ministry to the circumcised worked also through me for mine to the Gentiles. And when James and Cephas and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that was given to me, they gave the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me, that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. Only they asked us to remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do. But when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. And the rest of the Jews act hypocritically along with him, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, If you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners, yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Jesus Christ in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. But if in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we too were found to be sinners, is Christ then a servant of sin? Certainly not. For if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. For through the law, I died to the law so that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish? Having begun by the Spirit, you are now being perfected by the flesh? Did you suffer so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? Does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith, just as Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness? Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham, and the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. So then, those who are, who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse, for it is written, 
Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith, but the law is not of faith, rather, the one who does them shall live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us, for it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree, so that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. To give a human example, brothers, even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it has been ratified. Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring, who is Christ. This is what I mean. The law which came 430 years afterward does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God so as to make the promise void. For if the inheritance comes by the law, it no longer comes by promise, but God gave it to Abraham by a promise. Why then the law? It was added because of transgressions until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made, and it was put in place through angels by an intermediary. Now an intermediary implies more than one, but God is one. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Certainly not. For if a law had been given that that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. But the scripture imprisoned everything under sin, so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Now before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then, the law was our guardian until Christ came, in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God, through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise." I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave, though he is the owner of everything, but he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. Formerly, when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those that by nature are not gods. But now that you have come to know God, or rather to be known by God, how can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world, whose slaves you want to be once more? You observe days and months and seasons and years. I am afraid I may have labored over you in vain. Brothers, I entreat you, because as I am, for I also have become as you are. You did me no wrong. You know it was because of a bodily ailment that I preached the gospel to you at first. And though my condition was a trial to you, you did not scorn or despise me, but received me as an angel of God, as Christ Jesus. What then has become of the blessing you felt? 
For I testify to you that, if possible, you would have gouged out your eyes and given them to me. Have I then become your enemy by telling you the truth? They make much of you, but for no good purpose. They want to shut you out that, they, that you may make much of them. It is always good to be made much of for a good purpose, and not only when I am present with you. My little children, for whom I am, again in the anguish of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. I wish I could be present with you now and change my tone, for I am perplexed about you. Tell me, you who desire to be under the law, do not listen to the law? For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by a slave woman and one by a free woman. But the son of the slave was born according to the flesh, while the son of the free woman was born through promise. Now this may be interpreted allegorically. These women are two covenants. One is from Mount Sinai, bearing children for slavery. She is Hagar. Now Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia. She corresponds to the present Jerusalem, for she is in slavery with her children. But the Jerusalem above is free, and she is our mother, for it is written, Rejoice, O barren one who does not bear. Break forth and cry aloud, you are not in labor, for the children of the desolate one will be more than those of the one who has a husband. Now you, brothers, like Isaac, are children of promise. But just as at that time he who was born according to the flesh persecuted him who was born according to the Spirit, so also it is now. But what does the scripture say? Cast out the slave woman and her son, for the son of the slave woman shall not inherit with the son of the free woman. So, brothers, we are not children of the slave, but of the free woman. For freedom, Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he is obligated to keep the whole law. You are severed from Christ. You who would be justified by the law, you have fallen away from grace. For through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness." For in Christ Jesus neither Jesus for in Christ Jesus neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything but only faith working through love. You were running well. You hindered who hindered you from obeying the truth? This persuasion is not from him who calls you. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. I have confidence in the Lord that you will take no other view than mine, and the one who is troubling you will hear the penalty whoever he is. But if I, brothers, still preach circumcision, why am I still being persecuted? In that case, the offense of the cross has been removed. I wish those who unsettle you would emasculate themselves. For you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you hate and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For those who are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are evident, sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. 
but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also walk by the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. For if anyone thinks he is something, when he is nothing, he deceives himself. But let each one test his own work, and then his reason to boast will lie in himself alone and not in his neighbor, for each will have to hear his own his own load, bear his own load. One who is taught the word must share all good things with the one who teaches. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For, for whatever one sows, that will he also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. But the one who sows to the spirit will from the spirit reap eternal life. And let us not grow weary of, of doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, and especially to those who are of the household of faith. See with what large letters I am writing to you with my own hand. It is those who want to make a good showing in the flesh who would force you to be circumcised, and only in order that they may not be persecuted for the cross of Christ. For even those who are circumcised do not themselves keep the law, but they desire to have you circumcised that they may boast in your flesh. But far be it from me to boast except in, the, except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. For neither circumcision counts for anything, nor uncircumcision, but a new creation. And as for all who walk by this rule, peace and mercy be upon them and upon the Israel of God. From now on, let no one cause me trouble, for I bear on my own body the marks of Jesus. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit, brothers. Amen. God, we want to hear from you as a church in 2020 who struggles every day in our lives with gospel compromise. Feeling like we got to prove ourselves, earn your love. Or maybe not being so powerfully changed by your love that we're not doing, living the kind of way we're called to in Galatians 5 and 6. Walking by the Spirit and faith and trust and love, bearing one another's burdens. Manifesting the fruit of the Spirit's work in our life. We need to hear from you. Help us as a church, as a congregation, to, to faithfully engage this letter and to attempt to understand it, certainly in its original context. We need to do that. But my guess is our questions aren't, should we be circumcised or not? Will that make God happy? Should we be Messianic Jews or can we just be Christians? Those are probably not the questions of our heart. But we've got similar questions. Questions about, do you really love me, God? Questions about, if I'm set free, how come I don't feel it? 
questions about trying to please God with religious performance. Hear that all throughout the church. It's easy to slip away from the gospel. Help us to be amazed anew at your grace which brings peace. Help us individually, faithfully to engage this book as we engage it together. Pray it in your name. Amen.